discussion turned into a discussion of cost-benefit analyses, to which I asked, what value do you put on people? Because in a system like that, wealthier neighborhoods would always get ahead. Wealthier neighborhoods with the nicest houses would always receive the priority. Hello and welcome. I am Nick Kenoki, and that was Mark Morial, President and CEO at the National Urban League, presenting during the Addressing Inequity Through Asset Leadership at the ALN 2020 Asset Leadership Forum. To watch the video of this keynote and the follow-up panel discussion, go to assetleadership.net or find us on YouTube. And now, Eric Brown, Director, Mobile Assets and Personal Property at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Uh, I want to introduce to you guys uh, Mr. Mark Morial, the President and CEO of the National Urban League, former mayor of New Orleans from 1994 to 2002. Um, also has been the president of the mayor's, uh, mayor's conference and the Louisiana senator. Uh, several honorary doctorates in law, human letters, and public service, and recipient of countless awards. He's also an author, and uh, on the top of my list now is his new book, The Gumbo Coalition. So with that, I will introduce to you, Mr. Mark Mariel. Hey, thank you very much. I uh, appreciate the generous introduction uh, and uh, the kind words. And let me just say good afternoon to everyone. Uh, I want to especially thank my friend Marty Rowland, who uh, first reached out to me to uh, invite me to participate today. Marty uh, was part of my first uh, campaign for mayor way back in 1993 and 1994. So Thank you, Marty, for your friendship and also for your many years of advocacy. I was thinking, because you've asked me to talk about inequity and the subject of asset uh, management and asset leadership, uh, about a, 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 a something that happened my first month or two as mayor of New Orleans. The mayor of New Orleans uh, serves concurrently as president of what is known as the New Orleans Sewerage and Water Board. Uh, and the Sewerage and Water Board is uh, the, the agency that oversees the city's water systems. The water systems, of course, include the fresh water system or the clean water system or the potable or drinking water system. It also includes the waste water system. And then it thirdly includes the city's drainage system. New Orleans has an extensive network of pumping stations, underground canals, uh, catch basins and the like, uh, which allow the city to be able to exist in a part of the world that is below sea level. Uh, and this system uh, is, uh, was, a, was, a, was an innovation uh, of the early 1900s uh, and remains so to this day. It's had some challenges in recent years with the age of equipment. Uh, that system uh, and its development uh, has been supported by uh, the United States Army Corps of Engineers uh, and connects to the broader, uh, if you will, drainage system and storm water and flood control system that exists in southeastern Louisiana. Early on in my career, we were discussing the decision-making process that the Water Board had undertaken to determine where enhancements uh, to its drainage system 
would take place, where the investments would be, where the priorities would be, in effect, what neighborhoods and where would the money be spent? And the discussion turned into a discussion of cost-benefit analyses. Uh, and uh, the presenter said, well, we look at uh, the value of property that would be impacted by a flood or a storm and where the value of the property is the highest, the potential damage would be more significant, is where we prioritize uh, the, uh, the investments in, quote unquote, your drainage system, if we're going to support it. To which I ask, what value do you put on people? Because in a system like that, wealthier neighborhoods would always get ahead. Wealthier neighborhoods with the nicest houses would always receive the priority for the investments in flood control systems. And I said, what value do you put on people? Do people figure into the equation? Uh, because those of you that are involved in emergency preparedness always know people come first. People come first when you're firefighting, People come first when you're doing disaster preparation. Property comes after people in every single element. I point that out because I challenged the formula at the time as being inherently inequitable. And for New Orleans, that meant inherently having a racial, racially exclusionary dimension. Uh, we are at a point in time in American history uh, today where uh, with uh, everything we do, with many assumptions we've taken, with many decision-making matrices, matrices I should say, and decision-making equations that we've used, uh, we have to challenge whether those systems are inherently inequitable, inherently inequitable from a racial standpoint, and think about how and why in many respects, we need new thinkings and we need new systems. Uh, I learned when I joined, uh, when I became mayor in 1994, we were going to embark on a significant, uh, if you will, uh, capital projects program. We were going to go to the voters and ask for the authorization to issue bonds uh, in a number larger than ever before in the city's history. Uh, we were going to make significant improvements to the then airport. We were going to bring rail systems to uh, the city. We had a comprehensive nearly billion-dollar program. I asked the staff, this is in my earliest months as mayor, to uh, give me a historical map uh, and color code, because I wanted to see it visualized, as to where, in what neighborhoods, the city's investments in street repairs and drainage repairs had taken place over the previous 10 to 15 years. I wanted to know where we had spent our capital projects dollars, where we had spent our CBDG public facilities dollars. Woe and behold, when it was mapped out, it demonstrated an inherently inequitable result. The more affluent neighborhoods in the city had seen significantly more street repairs, 
significantly more capital projects, uh, the less affluent neighborhoods in the city, which were mostly African-American, had seen fewer street repairs and fewer investments in drainage. And I presupposed uh, that this, if you will, pattern had existed for a long time. And my administration was the very first to put a lens of analysis onto decision-making. How are we going to make the decisions? Are we gonna do it need-based? Are we gonna to try to do it in a way that's at least equal as to dollars spent in various neighborhoods? Are we gonna put more money where the problem was greatest, where the historic underinvestment was more significant? Again, uh, challenging a long-held assumption where the decisions on capital projects had been made through politics and whoever had the strength and the power to lobby the city government the hardest, what neighborhoods made the best case. Uh, and in that instance, also because of New Orleans historic segregation and the fact that you had uh, exclusionary policies for many years, the result was you could visually see how poor neighborhoods had been shortchanged in capital investment dollars. But again, it was an analysis uh, that, that we did and we tried to, to, to change the decision-making formula. In today's world, the ability to parse, chop, control, uh, uh, dissect data and information is far greater than it was 20 years ago. And the ability to truly challenge decision-making uh, is, uh, uh, and, and to think anew about how decisions are made with respect to public investments, with respect to uh, uh, decisions about where you build and how you build are certainly, certainly much more available today if the will, the will, the will to do it is absolutely there. Uh, I am one who believes that uh, job one after January one for the nation, uh, in addition to trying to address the ravages of COVID uh, and the pandemic certainly uh, will be a broad investment in uh, the country and the nation's infrastructure. Uh, and the challenge will be, will we do it the same old way or will we do it in a new way? Uh, will we do it in a way that creates long-term resilience? Will we pay attention to uh, issues of environmental sustainability and environmental justice in trying to do it? It'll be a tall order for us to be able to do. Uh, the National Urban League has long championed uh, a different way of investing in our infrastructure, including a much bigger focus on community-based infrastructures, health clinics, libraries, schools, uh, assets and facilities that are close to people, not simply just bridges, not simply just airports, not simply that, even though those in many instances are needed, but how we do it and what steps we take, I think is gonna be part of how we try to meet the moment. Uh, we're at an inflection point and a crossroads point 
uh, in American history when issues of racial justice uh, touch everything we do and rightfully should. And for those of you who are on the front lines, uh, it is so critical that you challenge your own thinking, you challenge your own selves, and that we challenge assumptions in an effort to do it differently and an effort to do it right. When Katrina took place, uh, I was three years, uh, uh, my term had ended three years prior to Katrina. And uh, I was uh, horrified and, and, and repelled uh, to learn of a plan that had been hatched. And I talk about it in my book, The Gumbo Coalition, to in effect wipe out whole neighborhoods in New Orleans to wipe them out in a way where the people who lived in those neighborhoods had been evacuated, uh, had been, if you will, exiled away from the city that they knew and loved and were not at the table to make decisions. That a small group of high and mighty people had taken it up on themselves to try to develop a plan. The plan was repelled and rejected and, 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 and rightfully so by many people including myself, as being unfair, and, and I refer to it in my book as ethnic cleansing because of what exactly it was what it was. What's central uh, to how we think about uh, these issues today is the participation and the continued public education of people who are affected, served, and impacted by these decisions. Uh, who, uh, who, uh, whose lives, whose homes, whose livelihoods, whose businesses, whose public facilities, whose schools, whose hospitals, whose, who are affected uh, by many of these very important uh, decisions. And I certainly believe that in a quest uh, for more an equitable future for this country, uh, that uh, the participation and the voices of those who have been who have been historically locked out and left out is so absolutely uh, uh, essential. Yes, we need uh, new approaches. Yes, we need new plans. Yes, we need new ways. Uh, but we also need uh, a greater awareness uh, of, uh, of of the inequities uh, that was sort of built in to many of the old ways uh, and, and an awareness of them and a constructive dialogue and then constructive steps about how to change it indeed for the better. Uh, that is what I believe this nation has been about in the past, needs to be about even to a greater degree in the future. How can every successive generation take steps, sometimes giant leaps, towards a nation that's more equitable and more just for all. And I think those of you who, who are in leadership positions, as many of you, most of you are, have to think about that. Uh, it, is, it is about a, a generational legacy. It is about uh, uh, addressing longstanding challenges and problems. It is about meeting the moment of the crisis that the nation faces uh, with the pandemic, with the economy, uh, and indeed with the issues of, uh, of racial justice. So uh, I wanted to share that with you all today. I know you, uh, you're in conference uh, exchanging and learning. 
uh, and encourage you to challenge yourself around these issues of equity and around assumptions uh, around uh, asset management, asset location, uh, uh, significant decision-making uh, 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 processes and, and what goes into it and how you can make it uh, more equitable and how you can make it more beneficial to more people. So I will uh, pause there uh, because I know that time is uh, in great demand, but thank you for your attention today and, and wish you the very best as your discussions and conversations continue. Very good. So we really appreciate your time and your efforts and everything on this. And we have a couple of questions for you that have popped yeah, up. Yeah, certainly. I'll take a few. Uh -huh. Okay. If you don't mind, uh, Mr. Marty Rowland asked, and he says, good setup uh, to the basic inequity of urban system delivery. Uh, did you also look at uh, look at uh, who is paying property taxes? Because sometimes the wealthy get exemptions and it ends up uh, where poor and middle income people pay for the wealthy people's privileges. Now, let me tell you, we could talk for, um, for many, many minutes and many, many hours about the inequitable equitable nature of tax systems at the state and indeed the federal level, uh, because the tax system at the federal level is loaded with special interest exemptions, exclusions, deductions, and it's a complex subject. When I was in the Louisiana State Legislature, we decided that we were going to, we were not successful in doing it, but there's a group of us that wanted to put a sunset or an automatic expiration on every tax exclusion so that those who benefited from it would have to re-justify it every five or so years. Uh, but this is, this is a question of, of power. The, you know, the recent tax bill that uh, the, was pushed through by the current president cost the nation 1.5 trillion over 10 years. Uh, and it, it, its, its benefits were heavily skewed towards the wealthiest of Americans. And I think if you look at many of these broad tax cut provisions that have been passed really over the last 40 years, they generally are skewed mostly towards wealthier interest. Very good. So uh, me being uh, from New York City, uh, living here in Washington DC area, uh, visited New Orleans hundreds of times, which is one, one of my favorite cities in the world. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Thank you. And, 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 and dying to go back. Um, so uh, I do see, you know, when you uh, talked about awareness, representation is a big part too. I think we need more representation to make these decisions at a higher level uh, than we've been pretty afforded in the past. I mean, uh, representation normally comes from those who have the money to do so. Uh, in some cases, not always, but um, we, we need better representation in order to make these good decisions. That's just an Ericism right there. <laughs> Agree with you 100%. Uh, I do have another question for you, um, and it's from Mike Martinaro, actually. Uh, he'd like to know if the National Urban League is interested in learning how uh, the systematic approach of ISO 50, 55,000 can be used to address inequity uh, in uh, I, I think we would. You know, we're always open to learning. Uh, I have a dynamic group of 90 Urban League affiliate CEOs around the country who run my affiliates. I've got a great senior leadership team, I, I, and we are always open to learning uh, new, new methods, new systems, and uh, uh, about community decision-making. 
Very good. Uh, are there any more questions from the panel or from any of the participants? Yes, I have a few questions. And Mark, thank you so much. Hey, Cecilia, how are you doing? Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. It's now afternoon, at least in Chicago. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I was so glad that you started where you did. Um, as we talk about asset leadership network and asset leadership and asset management, um, the one asset that doesn't always come to mind is the human asset. People. And the people. And so that was really critical that you raised that as your very first issue that you raised. So thank you for that, because without the people in place, first of all, what are you doing it for? You're doing it for the people. I mean, I do holistic, inclusive economic development work, and economic development is nothing but for the people, by the people, for the people, and of the people. And so when you started talking about the water system, that is like the perfect issue for an asset leadership um, opportunity. And you showed how you did that in a very perfect way in terms of um, when we look at ISO 55,000 and it really in ISO 55,001, this is a standard that we have at our resources, at our hands as a tool that we can use to identify things that we might forget about. And water systems are, especially the ones you were talking about, are out of sight and out of mind. And you have a hard time thinking about those substations and those pipes if you're the community, your, your constituency would not think of it. So it's an important thing to look at that. And you, know, you, you as leader really hit one of our key things that we talk about in ISO 55001, um, 5.1 is about leadership, that you have to have the leadership in. And Mark, I mean, Eric made the comment about representation and the difference in having somebody who comes from an underrepresented population who is of a diverse background, whether it's a minority or a diverse background from the other people in the room, will raise different questions and you raise the questions and challenge them and that is the leadership aspect we really think is important um one of the things i wanted to ask you about was when you talked about the community-based infrastructure because i do the holistic side you mentioned libraries and schools and that made me very excited because this is something that has to be done in partnership holistic inclusive economic development is something done in partnership with interdependent parts. So the schools, the parks, the hospitals. Parks, yes. Um, the recreational aspects of a community, the hospitality, all that, the retail, these all have to come into play. So I'm curious how you found yourself bringing those things into play and then layering it as somebody who was mayor. How did you also then look at who were the people that weren't at the table? Because 55,001 um, in the section four really deals with stakeholders. And I often talk about the unusual stakeholders, those that people don't think about. So how did you deal with bringing- You know, I, uh, 
when I served as mayor, I had a fundamental philosophy and it was that, you know, I wanted to bring disparate groups together. And I felt like the only way I can move big things was to get broad consensus. And the only way I could build broad consensus is to get diverse groups sort of around a table or not around the same table, around an initiative. And sometimes you have to realize you have to create it so that there are wins for everyone. Uh, and, and it's not easy to do. When I did the first bond issue, I also talk about this in my book, New Orleans had had a habit of going to the voters for single projects. The convention center would go for a project, uh, It'd be a project for streets, a, a proposition, separate propositions. And I basically said, we're not going to have any more separate propositions. We're going to have one proposition with all the projects included in a single proposition. So when everyone votes yes, they vote on the proposition, they vote no. So what it forced is, it forced the hospitality industry, which was interested in a convention center expansion the port interests, which were interested in money to improve port access. It forced the, those groups to be at the table with the people that just wanted their streets repaired or the 30 million that I wanted to spend on recreation facilities. And I said, this is how this is gonna work. We're gonna all get in a canoe and we're gonna row. And we're all in one canoe. This is how this goes. And we all gonna either you know, get, go together, we all go over the waterfall together. I said, because all this cherry picking creates competition and resentment. So obviously that made the proposition much larger. And then I had the schools out there that I didn't control. They wanted to do something. I had business leaders say, well, we can only do schools of the city. I told the schools, I said, so I'm getting this canoe. You're all getting this big canoe. And, and we're going to push this canoe in the same direction. It's gonna make it bigger. It's gonna make it more substantial. Uh, it's gonna make it more expensive, but it's gonna create a winning proposition for the city. We passed the bond issue two to one, overwhelming margins because we were able uh, to do that. And you know, it was, it was counter to the way business had been done usually. And so what I'm saying now at the federal level, I've said this across the board for the last six or seven years, I've said, number one, we're not going to support an infrastructure program that does not include community facilities. We're also not going to support an infrastructure program that doesn't have built into it uh, workforce, job training, uh, uh, job commitments to people who have historically been locked out, like returning citizens and the like, gotta build it into the program. I said, secondly, we're gonna wanna roll for minority owned businesses in the program. I said, and we're gonna put, you gotta put all, I said, this is what we want all these pieces to be put together. And we want benefits uh, uh, for, uh, you know, uh, 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 environmentally sustainable transportation, public transit, you know, rail systems and the like. So, you know, the, the whole idea is 
you have to start with an inclusionary vision, right? And I use, you know, Washington likes to talk about, uh, they, they like to use the term bipartisan. I like to use the word inclusionary because it's not about politicians getting in a room and cutting the deal. It's about whether the people broadly benefit. And I've said to, uh, we were talking about this issue, of issue of housing, and someone said, well, what about the rural? I said, well, the rural area, bring them in, get them in a canoe too. Why can't we, if we think big and large, and I think it, it, it's, it's a mindset that speaks to not having a zero-sum game mindset. You know, the country right now is in a big, is in a challenging spot, and it needs some big moves and some big ideas to move us in the right direction. And that's the kind of leadership we need. And we need, we need leadership that's serious, that's going to say we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make an effort to try to put packages together that benefit a lot of people. Uh, and and that's, that's kind of how I think about this, this type. You have to think about it in that way. And I'm not, this is, it's, it's, it's very doable, you know, if, if you say, because see, the people uh, beyond all this, you know, definite differences of opinion about ideology and politics. At the end of the day, people are trying to make sure their neighborhood, they're trying to take care of their families. They want to be healthy. They want to be safe. Their kids want to be educated. You know, you got to kind of get back to what the objective is. Thank you. That's right on target. And I really appreciate your thoughts on it. And I'll have more after Hugh has a question. Okay. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So Mr. Morial, I being in the water industry, I was appreciative of the example that you used. One thing that I've been trying to, uh, I would like to hear your thoughts on is I think the nation's uh, consciousness was brought to attention with the story of Flint. And I think uh, in that example, I wanted to understand what was your thoughts on uh, what I tend to see, especially approaching this from the technical side, being an engineer, being in the uh, water utility industry, is the fact that there seems to be a strategic disconnect between the strategic objectives set by the stakeholders. And the breakdown seems to happen in the implementation phase where plans actually become created and executed. And there seems to be a lack of what may, may need to be a level of service expectation for all customers. So then we move the conversation beyond affordability, which tends to then drive a different expectation of level of service where, uh, as you referenced, those who can afford to advocate may necessarily do so. But uh, it seems to be that there may need to be a need for what would be a benchmark or you know, somewhat close to a customer bill of rights in terms of- Yes. If there is investment, all customers are treated equally. Uh, have you had any experience with that? And, and I will tell you, is the this is where, around that? so when you're a public official, you work in a water system, you work in a transit system, and you bring the sensibility of understanding what the locked out and the left out have experience because it's part of your life. It's part of the communities that you love and you know. And you bring that into uh, being an executive in a water system or utility system. 
you have to bring those sensibilities to the decision-making table. You have to be disruptive, you know? In other words, sometimes I always felt, I'm not just gonna sit back and just respond to the people that make the most noise. You know, I'm gonna have a point of view because I realize that there are parts of the community that may not be as well organized to come to these meetings and come downtown. And, and, but, but they're relying on me because they hired me by electing me to advocate for them, to advocate for them. And if I just sit back and say, well, why aren't you all downtown? Well, you're not downtown because you're working. You're not downtown because you don't have a neighborhood association with an executive director or to come down here and advocate for you. So you have to sometimes, people inside public agencies, water systems, you know, uh, I think the disrupt, the change we need is there ought to be an operating ethos of equity. That when we do work, we're going to make sure that we serve everyone the same. We're going to be equitable about how we invest in upgrades, repairs, customer service, uh, and the like. Now, here's the backdrop. Uh, I was talking to a group of young people, uh, and we were, I was teasing them because I said, do you know what an outhouse is? It's an outhouse. No, I don't know. What is an outhouse? And I said, well, this is what an outhouse is. I said, and did you know that indoor plumbing was an innovation of the early 20th century? To build houses with indoor plumbing was an innovation. And the idea of uh, water at the tap in a house or an apartment was an innovation of the you know, late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, and the point is, is that our water systems are now in many instances 100 years old. They're deteriorating, they're falling apart. They've suffered from lack of deferred maintenance, lack of investment, lack of of, of, of care and attention. That's part of the problem in Flint, but there are many Flints across the land, many places across the land. Uh, so when you are in a role to be a decision maker on, an, on the inside, you have to insist that customers are treated equally. You have to be an advocate inside. People inside of a government, inside, can also be advocates uh, for, for equity. And you talk about a customer bill of rights? Absolutely. I mean, water systems, utility systems, uh, city governments uh, can, can adopt such things and say this is an operating principle. We're going to treat people the same. We don't care what part of town they're from. We don't care what neighborhood uh, they are from. Uh, we are going to treat everyone the same. We're going to at least strive and endeavor to do that. And, and I think that's what people expect. And I do think that's what people uh, uh, expect from government. You have some of the largest businesses in America who place a premium on customer service. They put a lot of energy in it. Now, they do it because they don't want bad press. They don't want upset customers. They have specialists that resolve 
problems. And then you have some companies that are very poor at it. You know, they don't do a very good job. They're not as responsive. I talked to a business leader in the, uh, I just said in the cable industry, who told me that he was doubling down on his investment in customer service. And he said, the reason why he says is because if I can resolve customer problems with one or two contacts with the customer, I'm going to save money versus it takes 10 times talking to them to resolve. So I have to have a good customer service operation where we try to resolve things quickly. We, 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 we empower people to make decisions. Uh, it's a long way of saying, uh, answering your response that it has to be a principle and an ethos inside of an agency. And that if you're a change agent, and uh, uh, the previous questioner talked about representation. This is where representation, you know, comes in. I, I raised the questions I raised about uh, the water system in New Orleans because I felt like I had an obligation to the neighborhoods uh, that were instrumental to my election, number one, but also the neighborhoods I knew growing up in the city. You know, I knew, I rode around, I saw, you know, the deteriorating infrastructure. I'd always see it and it used to not, I didn't like it, right? So my thing was, if I get a chance to do something about it, I'm not gonna just get excited about being the mayor of my hometown. I'm gonna try to do something. I'm gonna try to make a, make a difference. And you know, that's what I encourage people to do in this moment, right? Make a difference, raise the issue, articulate the challenge, push for customer bill of rights, push for the principles of equity. So uh, just one uh, follow-up. We see that in the challenge of the larger society, you know, uh, we tend to realize that structural problems need structural solutions. So uh, advocacy and representation alone will not fix it. And right. I think what has been highlighted here, especially with ISO 55000, but I think what needs to be actualized and, and made actionable is a structural fix to a system that's designed to create the outcomes that we see now. And how do we connect advocacy with strategy and then outcome to ensure that we have a structural fix that enables an equitable return? You asked the most difficult and pressing question. You know, how do you take sort of advocacy, sometimes a little outrage, sometimes concern sometimes and actualize it. This is where um, I think people like you come in. Uh, I think it is about uh, 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 looking at systems and saying, okay, here is how we can make the system more equitable. Here are the steps we have to take. But one of it has to be a recognition that you're not gonna do these things overnight. And you have to sometimes have small victories. And sometimes you have to have methodology. And sometimes you have to have plans. It is not, but you have to identify, like in my example, which is a, a narrow example, but a real example about how they were evaluating where they put their investments. Now, obviously I had the power to, uh, to, uh, to, because I was, you know, I was a mayor of the city to say, I don't want us to do business like that anymore. Cause I'm not, the, I won't sign off on it anyway. And so it forced 
people to think about things differently. And in this case, we were bumping up against the Army Corps of Engineers, which had its methodology uh, at the time. Uh, but that this is where, you know, the generation of, I'll call it engineers, public administrators, uh, elected officials, uh, uh, really, really have to uh, uh, design the proper solutions to get from advocacy that puts you on a path of structural change. It is not easy. And you can easily get frustrated if you imagine that structural change can happen overnight or immediately or instantaneously. It requires policy shifts. It requires policy changes. So sometimes it's taking a slice of the pie and trying to re-engineer it or, or fix it. Uh, it also requires, you know, you have generations of both engineers and technicians and MBAs and lawyers. Uh, I'm a lawyer who are taught a certain way. You're taught a certain way to think about things. Sometimes the way you're taught is inherently based on inequitable assumptions. Now you ever face that challenge? And you say, well, I'm not so sure that this is the way. So I think that this is one of the great challenges of our times, how to, how to address. But let me tell you, where structural inequality exists is within institutions. So you take a water system, or you take a, a, a public agency, right? And you say, well, can I do my part to uh, infuse a better set of equitable principles in how we're going to make decisions going forward in this agency? You got to take slices sometimes. It's, 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 this is, but you asked a very you know, important and compelling question. And I hope in the conference, they'll take your question and you all will discuss it and debate it a little bit because I think it's, it's, it needs to be. Thank you. I wanted to continue on my question with Hugh's question in terms of the structural side of how do you go about having those constructive discussions, Mayor Moriel? How do you um, begin that process of, you may be mindful about this issue and aware of it, but as you said, the others that are working with you are coming from the disparate backgrounds and they have their mindsets of how this should work, whether it's the technician or the lawyer or the politician. How do you go about avoiding the shame blame game and raising consciousness so that you can say, we're going to have this as the beginning of our discussion, looking at what are the issues that have not been addressed? Who are the stakeholders that have not been included? This is where we are as a nation today. How can we have difficult conversations? How can we do it in a way where people can be candid and people don't uh, get offended uh, quickly? It, it, it is not an easy thing to do. Sometimes it's smart, it starts with small groups. Sometimes it starts with a handful of people. Sometimes it starts uh, in, in interesting ways. Sometimes it starts with a leader who says, you know, I'm, I'm committed to this and I want to change and I'm going to help you get educated. I was asked uh, a couple of times over the last several months uh, by CEOs who've asked me for books, uh, 
videos, movies that their leadership team mm -hmm. uh, could take a look at to better educate. It starts with everyone really asking themselves, can I have an open mind? You know, or am I so fixed in my own brilliance, <laughs> sureness, and, uh, and, uh, and, and so impressed with what I know that I can never have an open mind about things I'm not aware of. I can't, I, I'm not subject to being challenged. Not easy. Yeah. We shouldn't pretend it's easy, but it starts with small groups and it starts with uh, people. I've been telling a story. I'll tell you guys this story because I think it's relevant to the times. Uh, you know, I got a letter about uh, two months ago, two and a half, three months ago from someone I was in uh, middle school with. And so I went to middle school. The middle school I attended, I, I integrated it in 1968. I was the first, one of the first two black students to go to the school. And for the four years I was at this middle school, I was the only black person in my class. And there were only two black students in the whole school. And, uh, you know, it was a, an experience that was positive, but it was an experience where getting called names and being picked on, particularly by older boys in the school, was not an uncommon thing, right? So as you can imagine, I got my share of fistfights because uh, it was just kind of who I was. Uh, and I got a call, I got a, I got a letter from a, a, a man and you know, this is 50 years later, 48, 49 years later, who writes me a letter of apology says that, uh, you know, I apologize because I racially bullied you when I was in, we were in middle school. And he says, you know, that the Black Lives Matter movement and discussion in America had caused him to be introspective mm. about who he was and who he, who he was and who he wanted to be. It was sort of, you know, an inch. It's, this letter came out of the blue now, you know, just totally out of the blue. But it, it, it shows you that, you know, sometimes people have awakenings. And... Um, these discussions are not easy, uh, but they're important things for us to have in the nation, right? To criticize or to raise issues about American history is not to be anti-American. You know, people forget that the, the, this nation was founded on protest. The Boston Tea Party was a protest <laughs> by the settlers who were protesting the Stamp Act. They were protesting a uh, monopoly franchise given to a company to sell tea in, in the Massachusetts colony. They protested, protest, they were disruptive. They pushed back and that's part of the tradition and the history of this nation. So uh, having those discussions, I think, uh, uh, we also, you know, all of us, we, you know, you, you have to be open to hear people's fears, anxieties, and aspirations. I mean, as, as, as an, as an African-American man who has an 18 year old son, you know, I live with an anxiety when he goes out, can't help it. It is what it is. I think I've raised a good young man with a good head on his shoulders, but I have anxiety about it as any parent would have anxiety. And I 
reflect on the things that I experienced, you know, growing up. Uh, and, and that is extremely real. And that may not be something that others may necessarily feel intrinsically. But uh, those conversations, we have to kind of force them. Uh, and, and I think small, sometimes smaller groups create, I think it's hard to do in a large setting sometimes until you set up smaller conversations. And I think they're also important conversations to have relative to how you rethink the work and the mission of the organization or the agencies that you lead. Yeah, I'm gonna have have to cut in one. I got one more question. Is that Daniel? Okay, sir. Hi, Daniel. Yeah, Great, Daniel. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. Um, first, Mark, uh, congratulations for your job. Thank uh, you. Uh, I'm living in Colombia, South America. <laughs> ah, are you in Cartagena? <laughs> no, Bogota? I, I, I was living in Cartagena many years ago. <laughs> Very beautiful city. I was there three years ago. Very beautiful city. <laughs> oh, uh, I want to talk about risk management. Uh, risk, management risk management is uh, a key topic in, in uh, asset management. In your making decisions process, <clears throat> how you uh, use risk management? Uh, do you use uh, a risk uh, 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 matrix or uh, something like that? I'm so curious. Uh, in, in you know, uh, I always, you know, it's interesting. When I am, we had this discussion about something recently in the work that I do, and we were talking, I was talking about materiality. And it came into play about a clause in a contract. And we were fighting over it with the people we were contracting with. And I said, well, let's ask this question. Is it material? And the... Uh, my team said, well, what do you mean by materiality? I said, I mean, is the risk that the provision would be triggered a remote risk, right? Or a near risk? In other words, is this something that is likely to happen? Uh, or is this something that is so remote, right? Or it's one in a thousand or one in 10,000. And they said, well, how do we know that? I said, well, this is called making a judgment call. You know, it's imperfect because you don't have a crystal ball. You can't look into it, see the future. You know, it's not, it's not mathematical, although the analysis is mathematical. I said, so this is what I'm paying you guys for, to exercise judgment, right? And I think that risk management is all about judgment but it's also sometimes about seeing around the corners. Sometimes to do effective risk management, you have to be somewhat worldly. You have to be, have a sense of history. You know, you have to have a basic understanding because, and so we do it all the time. I do it all the time in budgeting. And how do I do it in budgeting? So I, I run a nonprofit. I have to make, we have to make a determination as to when someone makes a pledge to us how likely is it that the money's gonna come in, right? We have to analyze that. So we've created an 85% certainty rule that we're 85% certain that the money will come in. And when we, sometimes we debate, you know, whether this pledge from this 
donor is 85% certain. And so like sometimes when it's, I said, well, do we have it in an ironclad agreement? Does this donor have any history with us, right? Uh, so we use, in my work, I use risk, I've always used, it may not be totally formalized, but I think it is an essential part of all decision-making. But deciding on risk is many times a judgment call. You know, you can't always, sometimes in more scientific stuff, you may be able to be more certain. Uh, but I think it's essential. And I find, I'll say this last thing, that the ability to analyze risk is really an important skill. You know, to really be able to see, you know, I call it looking around the corner. Can you see around the corner a little bit? You know, can you really look out there so you, we know? And, but it comes, in, in my work, it comes up quite a bit particularly when we're in uh, agreement, negotiating agreements, you know, whether a provision is necessary and, or whether what it seeks to protect is so remote that if we lose it, we're not placing ourselves at great risk. Hope that helps. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, Marty Rowland wants to say something to you kind of quickly. Hey, Marty. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's good to have you uh, here, uh, Mark. I appreciate you participating. One of the uh, things I'd like to say is that I'm encouraged that uh, Asset Leadership Network and uh, National Urban League might be able to uh, collaborate for a, a joint uh, uh, effort. Uh, I was thinking in terms of the 60 chapters that you have that we might be able to do some communication. Uh, one of the things I think is important is that the, there's a a uh, series of practices that could be used together uh, that would help identify that how do you implement something on a small scale and then ramp it up and see where you're going and then go on because uh, you got the examples of uh, Flint um, that, that are still out there and uh, not only water but you know a myriad of, of things that need to be fixed but uh, I think uh, this might be the the level that we 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 go to and uh, you know make some great success. So I just wanted to uh, thank you for participating and hope that we can uh, collaborate. We'll catch up, Marty. Always thank you for your friendship and uh, look forward to further discussions and collaboration. And thanks to everyone today. Hope this discussion was helpful. Thank you all for listening to Addressing Inequity Through Asset Leadership brought to you by Mark Morial. If you liked what you heard, you can find this and other live recordings, podcasts, videos, and more at assetleadership.net.